0: Truth. How do we discover it? How do we understand it? And how do we apply it? These foundational questions of life can be answered in the pages of God's Word, the Bible. Through the systematic study of Scripture, we seek to equip women with a growing understanding of truth, which only comes by knowing the God of all truth. This is the Theology Matters Podcast. Welcome to the Theology Matters Podcast. We are excited to be back with you. Um, I'm here with Marty Crabtree. Oh, I'm Laura Corumbus. I'm here with Marty Crabtree and Wendy Blackwell, and we have a special guest with us for our bonus episode, Jesse Johnson.
1: A bonus episode? A bonus episode. All right, I'm excited for the bonus episode. This is coming
0: out later, so... They have something to look forward to. So yeah, we're talking with Jesse about the Trinity today. And so we're going to get right into it because it's a big topic. So Jesse, would you, I mean, the women listening are going to know you already because you're our lead teaching pastor, but will you tell us, what do we need to know about you that's extra? And tell us about your study for right now. That's that's what we want to know about. Okay.
1: So I am pastoring Emmanuel Bible Church uh, in the Washington DC area. I am a I graduated the Master Seminary, where I did a THM in theology, uh, and I got my MDiv there as well. But I'm now a PhD student at Christ College in Sydney, Australia. Christ College is part of the Australian College of Theology. It's kind of a network of uh, broadly evangelical schools there, and I'm loving it. I'm doing my PhD in what they call systematics or Trinitarian Studies, um, specifically studying the covenant of redemption and how that informs our understanding of Trinitarian relationships. And I've been at it a couple of years, and I have no more than one year to go, and my fingers are crossed when I say that. That's great. Um, so before coming to Emmanuel, I was in Los Angeles, where I was the outreach pastor at Grace Community Church with John MacArthur, and I was a chaplain with the uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Department um, and teaching at the Master Seminary. So Deidre and I have been married for... 16 years, um, yes, my math is good on that, <laughs> my, my math is good, uh, and we've been at Emmanuel now for 10, uh, we have three kids, Madison, Savannah, and Geneva, you can remember their order because MSG, MSG, yep. Oh. yep, good job Wendy, wow. did you know that before or just now?
2: I didn't, but there I just figured go. that out on mm-hmm. the fly, well done, <laughs> wow, what a mind. <laughs> <laughs> just don't ask me about the Trinity.
0: <laughs> no, we get to ask all the questions to Jesse today, so that's the exciting thing. Yeah, so we have had a class on the Trinity. We're going to cover it again in second semester, and, you know, it's just such a big topic, and we know that you're studying it, so we're glad that you're going to talk about it with us today. So so, we, so
1: you didn't exhaust the Trinity in only one semester? We
0: did not. Okay. Yeah, shockingly.
1: Yeah. So Deidre is taking this class. Yeah. And she loves it. Okay. Uh, she comes home excited and uh yeah, reading me portions of, of the books you guys are reading and telling me wh- what she learned and and I'm learning from you guys to her. And so it's 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 a it's you could even describe it as a triangle. Like it completes all the way all the way around. Okay. Like the Trinity. Like the Trinity. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you. That's very kind. And So we're going to dive in. So we want to know, why is it even important to understand the Trinity? Why does it matter?
1: Well, the Trinity matters because it's who God is. So um, in a sense, the Trinity is a noun. It's a thing. But better than describing the Trinity as a thing is describing the Trinity as as God, as as a being, and God is one being, one essence, one one glory, and He is our God. So to talk about the Trinity is to talk about the God um, who made us and who owns us and who saved us and who reveals Himself to us, and He reveals Himself to us as Trinity. I think there's an aversion that some people have to talking about the Trinity because it sounds too theological or. I have heard people say, why do we need to talk about the Trinity? Can't I just love Jesus? And, you know, there's a sense in which we understand that's true. You don't need to be a theologian to be a Christian, but there's another sense in which Jesus says, um, if you have seen me, you've seen the father. And so Jesus makes kind of an introduction to Christianity through the lens of Trinity, um, that if you if you want to just be a Christian and not talk about theology and just love Jesus, well, you can't just love Jesus without encountering him in a Trinitarian way. Um, sent from the Father, uh, the Spirit reveals the Son to us. So the three persons of the Trinity are acting together to reveal the gospel to us. So the Trinity is important because it helps you understand who God is, why God saved you, um, that he, he loves you and he saved you by being himself. You know, the prophet Isaiah says that Yahweh will not share his glory with another Um, that Yahweh alone will be our savior. And yet God sends Jesus. And so the Trinity is how we not just understand who God is, but why he saved us. Um, And the answer is for his own glory. He saved us by himself, through himself, for himself. It's all circling back to him. So you want to know who God is? You got to understand Trinity. Even if you want to read the Bible, um, because how did you get the Bible? There were no witnesses to creation. So if you have Genesis 1 in your Bible, uh, Genesis 2, um, these are things that happened before people were there to record it. So how do we even know about those things? Well, God reveals himself to us, and he reveals himself to us through the Holy Spirit, uh, who was a witness to these things. Um, even very famous passages like Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 110, um, where you have the persons of the Trinity talking to each other, the Father talking to the Son, and um, uh, you don't know about the conversation unless the Holy Spirit reveals it, who's the only witness to the conversations of the Godhead. So you need to know about the Trinity so you can love Jesus, know who God is, know why he saved you, and also know why you can trust the Bible to reveal him because the Bible is from God himself. Those are just some off-the-cuff answers for why, why we need to talk about the Trinity. Yeah, that's great.
3: Do you guys have any follow-up? Yes. So when we read the Bible, our Bible begins in Genesis mm-hmm. 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And and I think that a lot of us as believers, uh, people who read the Bible, even unbelievers, think that everything started then. But if the, the Trinity is eternal, there's something that took place before in the beginning. And so my question is, in kind of a general way, what was God doing before Genesis 1-1?
1: Yeah. Well... God was being God before Genesis Um, 1-1. And being God can sound static to us, like as if he's just sitting on the sidelines waiting to get in the game. But God is um, pure action. He's he's light. He's illumination. He's uh, revelation. And he is all of those things apart from creation. So God didn't create the universe to have someone to reveal himself to or to have someone to show himself to, or communicate to, because of the Trinity inside of God Himself, He's communicating to Himself, revealing Himself to Himself, uh, really in a in a very literal sense, communicating all of His attributes from the Father to the Son, and from the Father and the Son to the Spirit, and so in eternity past, before Genesis one one, even before the before the Earth was formless and void, before any of that, you have. Uh, a God who is pure action, pure energy, pure light, pure love, pure revelation, pure communication, uh, infinite communication and love within the Godhead. Um, so God wasn't necessarily doing anything he, except being himself, which is doing everything. You know, the million-dollar question that nobody can really drill down a concrete answer for is why then did God decide to create? Um, so... Is there a moment that flips in God's mind where He says, you know, just being myself is not sufficient? I need somebody else to, to reveal myself to. And you have to say no to that when you phrase it that way, because God's not deficient in any way. And so the reality is, He did decide to create. Um, and the Bible speaks of that decision with an intentionality to it. it, describes it as a promise in Titus 1, verse 2. Before the ages began, God promised uh, about. Redemption through creation. So God decrees redemption. He decrees creation um, in a promise form. It's referred to as a covenant in in Luke's gospel. The father covenanted to me a kingdom. Speaking of before time, um, the son of God is filled with grace and truth before time in John 1. So you have all this kind of language of like action and activity before time um, that then enters into time. And my favorite explanation comes from Jonathan Edwards, uh, who has... A very well-known line where he says it's no sign of a fountain's weakness that is prone to overflow its banks, and so you can a fountain is infinitely flowing and infinitely magnifying itself, but it breaks through the banks and flows to other uh, tributaries, meaning creation, and that's not a sign of a weakness in God that He was deficient, but a sign of just His omnibenevolence that He wants to He'll create. B- beings to give himself to. Um, that's how benevolent God is. But I do think it's very important. You you started your question with, uh, you know, how, how we define God. It's very important that, that creation never defines God. Um, God defines creation, not the other way around. And so God has to be perfect in and of himself before creation. Um, because otherwise you have creation. Feeding back, you know, go, going back upstream into your concept of God. And that's a, that's a pretty big no no. Yeah. And when I think about
3: before creation, I love uh, Edward's picture of that fountain. And, and, and I've uh, read that that is a fountain of love, of God's overflowing love for his son. And he is a father. And the Son is the Son, and that is part of their identity in the Trinity, their yeah. eternal relationship as Father and Son, eternally begotten.
1: Yeah. So I just, when I was in Australia last month at school, I was presenting some of my research to uh, this remarkably brilliant woman. She's a, a scholar of um, uh, church fathers and uh Cyprian she's devoted her her academic life to studying Cyprian and it was just amazing to be around someone who knows so much about you know one person in his theology and his thinking it was mind-blowing um to be around someone that brilliant and so I got to describe my research to her about the covenant of redemption which speaks of God thinking uh and planning redemption before creation and after I explained it to her she uh Laughed and she said, "She's she's a Baptist, not necessarily Calvinistic." And she said, "So what is it about Calvinists that they always want to imagine what God was doing before creation?" <laughs> 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 and so, it, which is a great, it's a very perceptive question yeah. um, because we, I think, we recognize that so much of our redemption hinges on that question, which in a sense is unanswerable because we only know what God has revealed himself to. And he, and he has not revealed all of the mysteries to us. Um, but he has revealed that he, uh, made us so that he can show us his love. Um, so that, I mean, that's the answer that. That's why Calvinists always talk about those things because it's fascinating to wonder, like, why did God choose to save us? It, it drives us back up to him.
0: Well, we know that it's Jesse because he talked about Jonathan Edwards and a fountain. So <laughs> yeah. if you if you jumped in after the introduction, <laughs> there's no surprise we're talking to Jesse.
1: Check and check.
0: <laughs> um do you have any more to add or do you I, want to jump in with our next well, question? Well, I
2: want to follow on, Jesse, because I, I got the privilege of spending time with you this spring and really just talking through how I was studying the Trinity and, and what I was coming up with. You let me talk through. You answered some of my questions. But my final question to you that day was, if you had one hour with a group of women to teach them about the Trinity, what would you tell them? And you, with no hesitation, said, one essence, three persons, eternal generation. Mm-hmm. Why there? I think,
1: so maybe this is kind of how I think. When I analyze something, I often find a weakness in it and then try to correct for that weakness. And I know there's limits to how good a leader can be if they're always trying to compensate for weaknesses. I understand that, but it is my my default setting. So when I look at kind of evangelicalism, uh, maybe even just more specifically American evangelicalism, I see a weakness in Trinitarian theology that um and this is all through through western church history coming from augustine forward uh western church history has chosen to focus more on three persons than on one essence and that's usually given in contrast to eastern church history which focuses more on one essence and three persons and some of that's you know stereotypes and some of that's just exaggeration to make a point etc but we live in a western world that has chosen to focus more on three persons than on one essence now, American evangelicalism in particularly has grown up almost more around a second person in the Trinity absent the first and the third. Um, and so you see in American evangelicalism, when we talk about the third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, it's u- he's usually relegated to the world of like speaking in tongues and charismatic chaos. And if you don't believe in speaking in the tongues and being slain in the Spirit and in the miraculous so-called miraculous gifts, then you probably are denying the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we're very quick to say, you know, we're not denying the work of the Holy Spirit, but we're also not going to speak in tongues. And that leads us in kind of a weird no man's world. There's also such a focus in our singing and our worship on the person of Jesus absent the Father. So it's not even uncommon to hear people speak of the Father as almost unloving, and Jesus is the loving God who's on the mission of redemption to uh, placate the Father's wrath. Um, The God of the Old Testament is wrath, and and Jesus in the New Testament is sunshine and puppy dogs kind of thing. So there's definitely that deficiency. And I don't think you're going to get a lot of women at Emmanuel that would articulate that deficiency. You're you're not going to hear people at IBC, I would hope not anyway, say the Father is unloving and Jesus is love, and we don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Like (laughs) They wouldn't say that. Of course not. But that thinking corrupts us. In a sense, we're the fifth. In the fish tank, and aren't really aware that we're wet. You know, we're reading books about God and books about Jesus and books about the Holy Spirit that are essentially um, focusing on Jesus to the uh, detriment of how we see the three persons of God working together. And so you got big theological constructs that are, um, I think, deficient in American evangelicalism. And we can't help but be. Uh, on the receiving side of that. So that's why I love talking about eternal generation. The idea that the father communicates all of his attributes to the son, because that really locks up in your thinking that the father and son and the Holy spirit, as they interact in this world are acting together. You know, Jesus did not sneak out in the middle of the night to go redeem us. (laughs) And you know, the the three persons of God really are in this together. And that's going to help us appreciate, um, the gospel. And when I say, uh, communicates all his attributes. What I with eternal generation, what I mean by that is the Father possesses the the attributes of God, all of them, and He gives all of them freely uh, to to the Son. Um, communicates all of them perfectly in their fullness, um, and so the Father and and the Son really are one essence. They are one being. They have one will. They have one plan. They have. Um, one set of attributes, to put it that way. Uh, And the Holy Spirit, of course, receives all those from the Father and the Son as well. And we shy away from that language sometimes because our default position is like, well, doesn't that mean that Jesus was created then? And that's the classic Arian position that Jesus was in a sense a created being that the Father gave many of the attributes to, but in creation, and we have to say, no, of course, Jesus wasn't created because the father is an eternal father. And for him to be an eternal father means he has always been, a, he's always given his attributes to to the son. Um, and he's always had a son. And so there's no start to this. It's just um, within the essence of God. Uh, God's essence is manifest in three persons in eternity. Um, so that's why I think it's so important to talk about because it, it just shapes so much. It keeps us from bifurcating or Trifurcating, if that's a word. (laughs) Um, It is now. (laughs) yeah. It keeps us from doing that to God and seeing the Holy Spirit working one way and the Son working one way and the Father working another way. Because if you chase down that thinking, if you allow that thinking too long in your mind, you're going to end up with three gods. And you'll say, like, I don't have three gods. I really only have one God because I know there's only one God in the Bible. I know there's only one God. I don't have three gods. But then you start to talk about it as if you do have three gods. And... So, yeah, that's what I would say.
2: Okay, so I will leave a lot of disappointed listeners if I don't circle back and ask you to clarify spiration. That was a new term, and so people were uncomfortable with it and didn't know quite where to go with that afterwards. So help us understand that.
1: Yeah, so the sun is begotten, um, and the sun is the only person of the Trinity who's who's begotten. And once that Emmanuel, I talked about, I'd read in a Delta Airlines magazine, uh, this st- back when, before COVID and the airplanes had magazines, uh, somehow they've, they've gone away, which, um, I enjoyed.
0: I know the sky mall is gone. It's such a bummer. Okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> No, it's true. It's
1: true. There was a fascinating story about, uh, parents of identical twins and things they did to tell their twins apart. Delta Airlines had the story And some twins, you know, some parents would Always dress one in red and one in green Or mark the heel of one With a sharpie and all kind of just really In pictures, there was a story about Parents always put one on the right and one on the left And then one day, um as the kids grew up and they were able to, you know, one had a, you know, a spot on his cheek or whatever, but then they forgot that they didn't know some pictures were reversed because they saw writing (laughs) on the shirt that was reversed. And so now they just like all their years of scheming for nothing, you know? Um, so when it comes to God, how do you tell the persons of the Trinity apart? I mean, that's, that's the question that Christians engage in when they read the Bible. And a common answer is the father is the one with authority and the son is the one who submits and does what the father tells him. And the spirit is the one who brings the gifts. And I would say that's, that's a bad answer. You know, that is a very common answer in the world. There are books written with that answer. There are systematic theologies that I love, um, and use and have gone through with at least one of your husbands, actually two of your husbands. Now I'm thinking about it, (laughs) (laughs) um, but, uh, yeah, I I don't think that's a helpful way of describing the persons of the Trinity. So if you reject the idea of authority and submission, um, then what are you left with? And it's, it's what theologians have often referred to as the, the means of procession uh, or the means of subsistence, the glory of God. In what form does it subsist in the three persons? So in the father, he's the unbegotten one. The father has the, the essence of God. It, it, the father is the manifestation of that essence by His own um, his own nature. He is the father. He's the source, in other words. And what it means to be the son, the son is begotten. All of the divine essence is communicated to the son or, uh, generated in the son. It's often called eternal generation, uh, given to the son. So the son is the only begotten member of the uh, person of the Trinity. He's the only one who's begotten, um, because he, he receives that from the father. The spirit on the other hand, um, has the divine attributes communicated to him through spiration from the father and the son. It's a spiritual response to fall back on Jonathan Edwards. I think he um, just describes it in a way that's the easiest explanation for us to understand. If you picture the father having a perfect image of himself, that image is not himself. It is an image And yet it's perfect in every way. The father is not mistaken about who he is. The image is exactly who he is in every way. That's the son. Um, And that's why the Bible refers to the son as the image of God. Um, That's generation. It's the image from the source. Um, He is the image of the invisible God, the son is. Well, the spirit, you know, you have this image now, the son who is animated, alive, the second person of the Trinity, who is his own person, And the Father, who is His own person, they have a response to one another. They have love to one another. They have, uh, you know, a third thing is the way it's often described. That third thing is how they respond to each other. And that response is spiritual. Um, That response is not an eternally generated image, it is a uh, spiritual response. Um, And that's spiration, that the the Spirit is all, and the response is going to be complete. You know, so the the son responds to the father, and their father responds to the son again with all of his attributes, all of his essence, all of who he is, and that response, so to speak, is is the Holy Spirit. That's inspiration, um, love, joy, fellowship, all of that. Now, there's a limit to using the word response because response sounds again chronological, doesn't it? In English, when you say I responded to something, that means you did something to me, and I responded. Um, so there's a logical sense in which spiration implies a response, but there's not a chronological sense. There's never a time when the father's without, without his spirit, uh, of course. Um, and so I have had asked, I'll ask my next question for me. What keeps that from going infinitely? You know, why does the father not then have a response to the Holy Spirit? That would be a fourth thing. Um, and that's because, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, Yeah. and the answer to that is because the Trinity is complete, um, is the father looks at the spirit, his response is, is the son. And as the father looks at the son, his response is, is the spirit. I mean, that's the necessity of Trinity. Um, you really can't understand this any, any other way. And Edwards uses, again, just a, the analogy of a person who keeps a log of his own actions and describes himself and at the end of the day looks over that log. Well, if that log were perfect and alive then it would be a second person. It wouldn't be you. It would be the exact representation of you. That's generation. Um, and, of course, with, with God, it happens instantly. And then you, if those two people then have an interaction with each other, that's a spiritual response. They have love and affection as, as they see each other. That's, that's spiration. Um, again, there's limits to any um, analogy. So I'm not implying that the son ha- has his existence because the father logged his activity or anything like that. It's just the image of what it means to be begotten. I'm not implying that the um, the father reads his log or, or and then, ha-ha, a new thing. I mean, all three are eternal and instantaneous um, and pure, pure light. Uh, does that help? That does help me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it
0: does. Yeah,
3: and I th- I think a lot of of the confusion comes in because our language is poor to describe the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And so we use words that suggest other things to us that are part of our own experience, but are are not f- it, it related to the fullness and eternity, eternality of God. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Our language is deficient, but it's also sufficient, you know, because God revealed himself through words and the... Logos, being the Son, is, is the word. So God ge- reveals himself through words and language. He makes us speaking beings. Um, we, The animals don't speak like we do. They can't describe God's glory. The animals don't wrestle with Trinity. <laughs> um, uh, but we do. Uh, and, we, and God gave us words to describe it. So it's interesting. We need words to describe it because Jesus is the word. And, and even when you think of our own words, our words are resonant in our minds. So we think the word. There's the concept of what the word is outside of us. You, if you say tree, you have thinking of the word tree in your head. You have a picture of the word tree, and then you say the word tree. All three are distinct from each other. They're all simultaneous. They happen instantaneous. Um, they all convey the same essence of tree. You know, the thought in your head, the image in your head, and the word out of your mouth all have the same essence. It's a very apt understanding of Trinity, and it's all about words. It's a word picture. But it's not sufficient to know the mystery of God. You know, the way language works itself is evidence of Trinity, but is not sufficient to fully express and give us full understanding. Our, our understanding is limited by by our words. Music, I know you teach uh, music, Laura. Yeah. Another perfect example of that. You know, the, the composer has the sound in his mind or the form in his mind. They're the music notes on the page, Mm -hmm. and then the sound it makes when he hits the keyboard. Those are three different things, Uh, but they're the same thing. They share the same essence. Is there a chronological order to them? Well, there's a logical order for sure, but there's not really a chronological order, although you experience them in their logical order. You have the thought, produces the notes, makes the sound mm-hmm. so that's the order ditto with the word you have the thought connected to the image the sound out of your mouth well that's again exactly how the eternity is you have the source you have the image and then you have the sound and the beauty uh, and that's why the third the third one is called spiration because even in those examples of music it's the the, no, the noise that fills the air it's the beauty that fills the air it's the sound of the voice that fills the air it's not the word The sound of the word. But all three are the same and eternal. And again, those analogies also have weaknesses. If you poke them too far, you'll find weaknesses. But it's cool just to think about how music and words are themselves reflections of Trinitarian knowledge.
3: Yeah, Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, talks about that. And he uses the word harmony Mm. when he thinks about music, that harmony in the Trinity. And I thought that was a neat way to describe it. Yeah. I'm enjoying this book.
0: Yeah, it's it's a good one. Did you have a question that you wanted to ask from that
1: book? <laughs> uh, uh, from no. the uh, Michael Rees book? Because yeah. I see it sitting on, on a table. <laughs> yeah.
3: um, I, I, I did ask my question. You did okay. ask yes. your question. Yes. Okay. Thank
1: you. Yeah. And that that book is definitely worth reading. It's uh, by InterVarsity Press. I know we sell it in our bookstore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, you, if you're listening online, outside of driving distance from our bookstore, uh, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Rees. It's a very accessible um, book. I know you guys also read, or some of you read, the Matthew Barrett, um, Simply Trinity. Uh, So, I mean, Delighting at Trinity is probably a more introductory book. Um, And I don't mean that in a negative sense at all. Because it's introductory, it captures the beauty of God in a really novel way. So I I really like that book. Um, Simply Trinity, even though the word simply is in its title, (laughs) uh, it's less... Simple in that sense than Michael Reese's book. Um, you really do need the, there's a glossary in the back of a remembering, right? There is. Right? There yeah. is and you it's very, really, helpful. <laughs> yeah, you got to bookmark that glossary there, yeah. and dodge <laughs> back and forth for sure. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah. Same with his other book on uh, the attributes of God. Mm-hmm. That was none greater. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Do you have any other? I was going to ask you at some point if you have any others besides those.
1: Uh, Michael Reese has a sequel uh, to Delighting in, uh, in the Trinity called. Um, uh, the joy of Christ, or something like that. Uh, I know we also have it in our bookstore. I forget the title. Uh, title, I think it's called The Joy of Christ, or, or but it's more focused on the second person of the Trinity. Um, and I think I think that's excellent. Uh, so yeah, those are the books that I would point people okay. to.
0: Good. Yeah. Do you guys have any other? We were going to ask you about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, a little bit more to end with. But did you have anything? I do, before you, do.
2: you. Yeah. Because I think this brings it, you've alluded to in evangelicalism, mm-hmm. a lot of times our theology with the Trinity is sketchy. Yeah. Some of the, Matthew Barrett, since you've mentioned him, talks about this Trinity drift, this movement towards a social Trinity. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that concept?
1: So as I understand the phrase social Trinity, it means defining the person's of the Trinity based upon roles. And how they relate to one another. Now, there's a way in which that can be good. Um, there's a way in which you can say they are defined by how they relate to one another. The Father is the unbegotten one. The Son is the begotten one. And the Spirit uh, is the, the has his means of subs- subsistence by spiration. You know, he's the spiritual one in that sense. Now, all three are spiritual, but you know what I mean. Um, so there's a way in which you can say they have their, um, definitions by how they relate to one another. But if you go just like one centimeter below that, you realize even in that description of eternal generation, they don't have their existence by how they relate to one another. That's their means of subsistence. They have their existence by the, the divine essence. Um, so they, they, they are subsistences of the divine essence. There's one essence, one being. That's very different than saying they have their existence by roles because if they have their existence by roles, then their existence is not in the divine essence. It's rather how they submit or relate to a different manifestation of the divine essence. So it sounds like it's just wordplay. It sounds like it's almost the same thing. But when you start peeling back layers of it, there's, there's a very big difference uh, when you say each person in the Trinity has their existence as the divine subsistence, and by the, their means of possessing it, which sounds like complicated language, it's another way of just saying that the son is begotten and the, the spirit is spirated. That's very different than saying the son has his existence defined by submission to the father, um, or the spirit has his, his existence defined by uh, his submission to the father and the son. Once you insert the word submission or authority, you're putting in roles. Um, and that's what people mean by the social trinity. They're now defined by how they relate socially, like, like humans relate. You know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, so we relate that way. Uh, a boss has a different kind of authority. A husband has a different kind of authority. A parent has a different kind of authority. So we all have—we're familiar with that. When you import that back into the trinity for definitions, it's a problem. I told Marty earlier, you want to be very careful that creation doesn't kind of backfill up into your definition of God. And any concept of social trinity can do that very easily because you say, oh, I know I know what a wife is. A wife is submissive to her husband. I know what a husband is. He has leadership. So Jesus, in that sense, is like the wife. He's submissive to the father. And this is very common in um, American evangelicalism in the 90s and early 2000s. This was a very common way to explain submission in marriage. Uh best-selling Christian books, book of the year, a couple different years, I can think of several books that make that argument, that you don't need to be embarrassed about submission in marriage. After all, it's exactly how Jesus relates to the Father. So it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's actually totally fine because Jesus eternally is submissive to the Father. And it was a way of kind of sanctifying our own concept of of submission. But that's taking a human concept and, you know, backfilling it into the Trinity, and that's that's not good nor is it what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. Uh, It ends up hurting um, the human nature of Jesus because the revelation of scripture is that the eternal son of God has all authority in him. I think of Colossians 2 uh, verse 10, that in him, he is the head of all authority. Speaking of the son of God, he's the head of all authority. So all authority in In the Godhead in that sense is resonant in the son of God because authority is an attribute of God. And if it's an attribute of God, it's fully communicated from the father to the son and from the son to the spirit. The spirit has authority, all authority even. Um, So it's just not going to be helpful to define the person's eternity by that, that, that concept. Um, So that's why I think it's dangerous to go down that road. It's better to step back and say, When you see submission in in Jesus, which is in the Gospels, Jesus says, the Father sent me. You see that kind of language. It's better to see it in view of his humanity. He's obviously sent before his human nature. He's sent, you know, from heaven, he's sent. um, But that's a plan he's part of. The Father and the Son plan redemption together. um, And it's part of that plan that the Son would come and in his human nature that he has really been sent from God and in his human nature, he's submissive to the law. We talked about in the temptations when I preached that a few weeks ago. You really see it in the second temptation where Jesus doesn't say, um, of course the angels work for me, I'm God. Rather, he says, it is written, man will not test the Lord. Um, so Jesus puts himself under the law as, as man. So that's the right way to view his submission to the Father. He's a human submitting to um, the divine power. It's wrong to put that submission into the Trinity I think it just, it, it messes up the Trinity.
2: So is it a fair statement to say then that if you go into this social Trinity, you're really, the focus becomes the three persons existing in community yeah, rather than that one essence?
1: Yeah. And I do want to be careful and I want to be charitable mm-hmm. because there are ways to use the word roles mm-hmm. um, that... Aren't necessarily bad, but there's just so much baggage with them. When I, even when I'm reading a book on the on a good book on the Trinity, I, I was reading one by a guy I really like, and he's he's spot on. Like it's a very good book, um, but then he he used this language of roles to talk about redemption, and I just was just struck by it. I know what he means by it, and there's a good way to to use it, but I as I was reading it, it, just jarred me that there's so much baggage from the last 20 or 30 years of Christianity that once you connect the word roles to it, it, it maybe it's not as helpful as it should be. Uh, and the white, right way to use the, word, the concept of roles, by the way, is father, son, spirit, first, second, third. That's the, uh, you know, the eternal means of subsistence, father, son, spirit. That procession produces mission in this world. So, you encounter the Trinity in that order. Um, it's the Father who sends the Son to be the Redeemer, and it's the Father and Son who send the Spirit. That's what Jesus says. I'm going to go away and send you a helper. So you're seeing that eternal, you know, without time, without you know, chronology to it, the eternal Father Son Spirit, you're seeing you're encountering. God in that order, even in the gospel, Father sends the Son, Father and Son send the Spirit. You encounter it when you hear the gospel. Uh, you're you're a sinner and you stand in judgment, but the Father has chosen you, the Son has redeemed you, the Spirit has saved you, and you can reverse engineer it. You're regenerated by the Holy Spirit through faith in the Son that's given to you by the Father. Um, now, if you want to go down even further, you recognize the Father, Son, and Spirit all send to the Son. Um, the Father, Son, and Spirit all are involved in the imputation of sin on the Son. The Father, Son, and Spirit all give gifts. You know, Ephesians 4, it says the Holy Spirit, he's the one who's giving gifts, but you recognize the Father and the Son, send the Spirit. So there's a, there's a word for it, it's so appropriation is the theological word for it, uh, that you're just appropriating the giving of gifts to the Holy Spirit because he's the Holy Spirit. He's working in your heart. He fills your heart. When you understand that that's just language we use, then you're not surprised when you see in Colossians two again, for example, that you're filled with Christ, and you say, "Well, how am I filled with Christ?" I thought I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, you're filled with all three persons of the Trinity. Jesus Himself says that uh, that that all three persons of the Trinity are the ones who fill you. But it is appropriate to say we're filled with the Spirit. That's the language the Bible normally uses because He's the spiritual third one who's sent from the father and the son. So I could talk about this all week but that's that's where I I, I would go with that. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks Wendy.
0: Yeah, well, to, just to finish with our last question that we had planned, and then you can say whatever else you want <laughs> if there's anything. <laughs> I love it. If there's anything that you missed, but um, you know, the first semester of class we went through theology proper and most of Christology. So we're going to finish up Christology and move into pneumatology in the second semester. And so our question is just as we're thinking about the Holy Spirit, I guess, kind of the same question that Wendy asked about the Trinity. If you're going to go and teach a group of women about the Holy Spirit, what are kind of the main things that we yeah. should know?
1: So I don't know where you guys are in Matthew Barrett's book or you've gotten to this word, but a theological glow word for me to wrap up with is perichoresis. Okay. okay. Have you gotten to that? <laughs> so perichoresis is just the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Godhead. So all of the divine essence is in the Father, and he communicates it all to the Son. So there's a real sense in which you can say the Father is fully in the Son, which Jesus even says several times in John's Gospel. The Father is in me, He tells tells the disciples. The Father is in me, and I am in Him. Mm-hmm. So it's a mutual indwelling. Everything that's in the Father is in the Son. Everything that's in the Son is in the Father. So when you end when you finished Christology, hopefully you, you you've got that down that the Father has given Himself to the Son entirely, the, the second person of the Trinity who the second person in Trinity has everything from the Father and gives it back. So they have the same essence, in other words. They have the same essence. Um, So don't stop there. When you get to the Holy Spirit, carry that onto the Holy Spirit. All of the divine essence is in the Holy Spirit, in that sense, as much as something can be in a spirit, it's all in in him. Or to say it the opposite way, the Holy Spirit is the perfect and complete and full manifestation of the divine essence. All of the divine glory belongs to the Holy Spirit. Um, So often we get there with the second person in Trinity and the son, and we're like, I'm there because Jesus told the disciples, you know, Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the father. So we get it there, but then we kind of tap out. Um, with the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit doesn't have a body, He doesn't have a human nature. So, an interesting thought question: When Jesus tells the disciples, "If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father," is He talking about His incarnation? Um, do you need the human nature to fully see the Father? And I would say the answer to that is no. Um, the second person of the Trinity has the Father, has the divine essence that the Father has, fully in Him before the incarnation. Now, the incarnation helps us. He makes us, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. The incarnation allows him to be the substitute. The eternal son of God cannot be the substitute without the human nature because that's not the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is it will be a human um, that dies for sinners. And so that's the plan. But the son still has the eternal nature without his human nature, you know, in eternity past. The same thing is true with the Holy Spirit. So you can legitimately say that if you are filled with the Spirit, you are filled with the Son, and you are filled with the Father, and that if you have had an experience with the Holy Spirit, you've had an experience with the Son, and you've had an experience with the Father. So I would, I would drill down on that, and the Bible speaks about that. You know, I think of First uh, Corinthians chapter two: who knows the person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person? Which is a very that's a that's a neat thing to think about it just in marriage (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know you you know your husband's thoughts pretty well and Deidre knows my thoughts pretty well and I know I know hers pretty well but I don't know them perfectly Mm -hmm. you know because I'm not in her head who knows her thoughts perfectly well only her spirit we understand with that kind of language that her spirit is hers it's properly hers her spirit does—there's not areas of Deidre that her spirit doesn't know about, <laughs> you know. Um, her spirit has complete and full knowledge of her. It would be very difficult to disentangle what's her spirit from what's properly hers. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. You know, her spirit is her. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul says this in Second Corinthians—I'm sorry, First Corinthians 2, that nobody fully knows God. And you would expect him to say— except for Jesus who is sent from God. But that's not what he says. He says, except for the spirit that is in the mind of God. And now yeah, you're back to the three persons of the Trinity. Again, the son is the image and the spirit has the full communication of the father and the son. No one knows the mind of the father, the thoughts of the father towards the son could even be the implication except the spirit because the spirit belongs to both of them properly. Um, and that spirit comes to us in 1 Corinthians 2 and reveals to us the word of God. So that gets back to our bibliology. Mm-hmm. Like we trust the Bible because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit who knows everything in the mind of God. Um, so if I had an hour, I would talk about I would talk about that. <laughs> Which gets us gets the spiritual gifts. So yeah. the Lord of the church is Jesus. We understand that. Jesus will build the church. He says that. And yet Paul says the spirit builds the church through giving gifts. And that's what happens in uh uh, Ephesians 4 as well, that Jesus descends and he ascends giving gifts to men. Mm-hmm. And, but earlier in Ephesians, Paul said it's the Spirit who gives gifts. Well, you recognize all three persons of God are giving gifts, but you experience the Holy Spirit third, uh, or if you're going backwards first through regeneration and giving gifts and through faith in the Son back to the Father, there's always that order to it. Um, it's the Spirit is the one who gives gifts, and that's the full mind of God for the building of the church, which is the body of Christ. So
0: wow, (laughs) I think we're going to be going back and listening to this episode several (laughs) times. There is such
3: a beauty about the Trinity, Mm -hmm. you know, as you've been talking about it. I, it just, it, their knowledge of one another, their their oneness, their their harmony, it's just beautiful.
1: Yeah, I I agree. That's why I like the Michael Reeves books; is he brings out the beauty of Christ and the beauty of the Trinity so well. And this is why the the charismatic movement does grieve me in a lot of ways, because they have reduced that to speaking in tongues and being slain in the spirit. And they say, if if you don't speak in tongues, then you're denying the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, just imagine seeing the entire beauty of the Godhead communicated to us through the indwelling of the spirit and reducing it to speaking in a language you don't even understand, Mm. which is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14, like, I'd rather say ten words from God that I get than ten thousands that I don't even understand. Like it just isn't. Yeah. That's not the, what the Holy Spirit is. Is the, you know He's so much more the,
2: than that. Yeah, so. And yet the whole concept leaves me speechless.
3: Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we have good, good news, Wendy. We have all eternity.
2: <laughs> Amen. Yes. To fall flat on our faces and mm. worship. Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing.
0: Yeah. Well, we're so grateful that you've sat down with us to talk through all of this. And I just wanted to ask you in closing, if you would just pray for yeah. us, for the class. At this point in time, we have finished our first semester. We're going into the second semester. And so we would just love for you to pray for the women who will be there, for us as teachers. For um, yeah. those who are listening to for the For those podcasts. who are listening, yeah. 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 Right, so I'll...
1: would you close us? Got him grateful for Emmanuel Bible Church, and I'm grateful for uh, this women's ministry and uh, just the amount of work that these ladies have put into uh, organizing this class and teaching it, and um, this is a a blessed church that we have uh, scores and scores of women that take this uh, sacrifice of their own time um, to study uh, you and to study the nature of God. Um, this is truly a blessed church and it's blessed in, in many ways um, but specifically through the labor of these ladies around around this table here, Laura and Wendy and Marty and Bethany of course who uh, has created this really environment and culture of learning and worship that go together um, we know that knowledge puffs up uh, but your spirit brings knowledge and it brings love and drives us to humility as we're confronted with the fact of how little we, we ultimately do know. And I'm thankful for the really the culture of our women's ministry here that has, has cultivated that love for knowledge paired with humility and service to others and love of each other. We're thankful for that. God, I am grateful um, for this upcoming semester. I pray that uh, the women would grow in their knowledge of you and their spirit-filled worship of you, and uh, I would just pray that you would be honored and glorified through their studies, uh, that as they grow in their knowledge of you, it would produce a deeper love and worship of you and that the rest of their life would flow from that. We're thankful for this time and uh, most of all for your, your spirit who dwells in us and seals our hearts and directs us back to worship in you. We give you thanks for that in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you, Josie.
1: Thank you, ladies.
0: The Theology Matters course and podcast are projects of the women's ministry at Emmanuel Bible Church in Springfield, Virginia. Please subscribe to Theology Matters wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, please visit ibc.church and find the Women's Ministry page. We pray you will continue to study and understand the truth of God's Word every day and see just how much theology matters in every aspect of our lives.